it's really interesting to think of it as a vampiric film first and a film about a vampire second. Welcome to The Feminist Present, the podcast where we use the gift of feminism to figure out what's going on right now or in Victorian England. I'm the devil's concubine. And I'm your friend, Dracula. <laughs> I was really excited to see what you would do with that. Um, I'm Laura Good. I'm Adrian Dobb. And we are here to talk about Bram Stoker's Dracula. And uh, it's important that Bram Stoker's name be in that title. I still don't know why, but I know that it was important to Francis Ford Coppola. Well, I mean, so I think, you know, there are just so many, so many versions of the story. Yes. And, and this movie by Francis Ford Coppola is kind of in dialogue with them as much as it is with Bram Stoker's actual novel. But I do think that there is a kind of, we'll get into that a little bit in the episode, there's something about this movie, which I should mention, sort of came out in 1992, stars Gary Oldman, Winona Ryder, Anthony Hopkins, and Keanu Reeves in a yes. performance that can only be described as there. <laughs> as... <laughs> sure. <laughs> I think it's one of, I should, I should come clean and say this is one of my favorite movies of all time. Good. Uh, and part of it is that is precisely the reason why I think it, it has this, this somewhat laborious title instead of just elegantly saying it's Dracula. Um, mm -hmm. I think that Coppola seems to have set himself the task of being like, what What would this book have looked like if Bram Stoker had made a movie instead, right? It has, it feels like a Victorian oh, guy okay. kind of got resurrected in 1992, was given a gigantic budget, but all the technology of uh -huh. the late Victorian era and was not explained. It was not explained to him what a computer was, for instance, and and just <laughs> set to work, right? And it, it really has this feeling of like, it isn't just about that time, right? It's not a period piece. It's of right. that time in a weird way. Uh, and and some of the mm -hmm. most problematic aspects of its gender politics, I would defend on that count in the sense that the movie is clearly kind of winking at you, but it's also saying like, we're gonna go with this. This is this is something they would have thought, mm -hmm. right? Like. It is nothing if not like a fully committed yeah. movie. Like it is fully committed to its own conceits all the way through. Yeah, its own lunacy. <laughs> its own lunacy, absolutely. So like I, so I, I re-listened to our conversation with the incredible literary critic Merve Emery in advance of, of recording this intro. And I feel like Merve is like such a distinguished literary scholar. We hit many of the sort of lit crit points. But what I wanted to know a little bit more about is like when you first, like what did you first fall in love with about this movie? You know, like baby Adrian, what happened with Dracula? I mean, there is a not insubstantial queerness to the aesthetic of this film. Yes. Absolutely. It is operatic. It is larger than life. Mm -hmm. it's, campy. it's campy. It's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. And so I think Keanu that... Keanu Reeves is in it. Right. So there really are a few reasons for me to dislike it. And I'm a big mm -hmm. fan of the novel. I remember reading it for the mm -hmm. first time when mm -hmm. I was 11 years old and just being completely transported by it. I know you're not expecting me not to pause on the fact that you read Dracula when you were 11 years old. Well, I mean, in my defense, I mean... Oh, no one's asking you to defend yourself. I'm just saying that's a very striking and endearing detail. Compared to something like Frankenstein, this is a 
this is a page turner. It always was, oh, right? I'm sure I was around that age when I read it too. I'm just saying yeah. that that itself paints a portrait <laughs> of when this entered your life and to what effect. Yeah, I found it very, very hard to put down. Mm-hmm. And, and and this movie, I think, has the spirit of the book in spades. What it doesn't have is its sense of suspense. I really was on the edge of my seat reading this. I recall and some of this. You know, some of these tropes have worn a little bit and probably today I'd be like, well, yeah, no, I know how this is going to turn true. out. Yeah. Um, but back then, the the, the epistolary structure sure, of this sure, thing sure. really, you know, you're like, you know, it's 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 all about people, right? The same way that a, a good horror movie like has you shouting at the screen. You're like, look behind you, you idiot, right? It's like, return the, the letter, you dummy. You know, like this is, you're talking about the same guy, you know, uh, just half a continent apart. Um yeah, yeah, and that yeah. That isn't yeah. really captured in this movie. It's not an ultimately very suspenseful movie. The sense of threat, the sense of panic, you know, often racial and sexual panic. I think this movie is pretty admirable in the way it just kind of lays it out there and says, like, mm-hmm. was this mm-hmm. stuff racist? Mm-hmm. Was this stuff sexist? Oh, yeah, you betcha. But it's still going to be in our movie because we're not going to update this, right? It's like, mm. this is this is not an updated or modernized version. This is a... No, aggressively not. Yeah, yeah it's archaic. It's like, it's, yes. it's returning it to its own time and, and yeah. kind of expects you to watch it as a Victorian. And I, I think that mm-hmm. there's something really really lovely about that. If we're talking about the movie's commitments, I would say, like you, the movie is fully committed to its own anachronism, you know, and that's one of the things that's really delightful about it. I don't know if I would so readily call that one of your properties, but it seemed like a good analogy. It's interesting that you're, (laughs) I I really like the image of like child Adrian being really sucked in by this book because that helps, that illuminates your obsession with it to me a lot more fully. And I'm thinking about what you were saying about the epistolary plot, like that, or the epistolary structure, like that is a structure that always goes straight to my tender parts too. And like, as I'm Mm -hmm. thinking about other novels that I probably read around, that was a very high traffic reading time for me, like between ages 10 and 13, I feel like was really like when I was burning through like three books a day in the summer. Yeah. And uh, I'm thinking of Frankenstein is also written in an epistolary structure and Jane Eyre, which I distinctly remember reading around that time is not quite an epistolary structure, but it's a first person construction. So it feels sort of epistolary. Yeah. And I, I feel like those three books have a lot in common in terms of suspense and sort of, meted out revelations of like dysfunction lurking just beneath the surface and um god i saw a tweet the other day that was something like why would you not assume that it's your man's ex-wife once someone starts burning down your house from the inside (laughs) why would you not assume that your man's ex is just living in the attic (laughs) yeah i digress um well this was pure delight should we say a little bit about merve our guest yeah, um, Merve Emre is a professor and literary critic and is uh, associate professor of American literature at the University of Oxford. However, is um, way more than that. <laughs> I think to say so that much more. Merve is a professor, uh, that's, that's, a, you know, uh, that's, that's only a small part of what she does. She's an author, editor, and critic, writes for The mm-hmm. New Yorker, uh, many other places, uh, has written... Um, uh, several important books. Uh, Paraliterary was one that I particularly like, but also The Personality Brokers, which is fantastic, which is about the Myers-Briggs uh, personality test. Um, mm-hmm. And which... Uh, if, and if, how it's used by management consultants, which is even more fascinating. Exactly. And if you don't want to have to read that, you can also 
watch the movie version of that on HBO now. No big deal. Which yeah. is pretty, pretty impressive. I think I, fr- I first became familiar with Merve's work and internet presence with her collectively authored book, The Ferrante Letters, like when everybody right. was deep down in the Elena Ferrante hole a couple of years ago, Merve and a couple other really distinguished critics got their shit together to write each other really smart letters about it. And those letters were in fact so smart that they were published in their own like collective volume. And it's a really wonderful reading companion. If you are just picking up the, um, the Ferrante quartet for the first time. Um, but, yeah, came out last year with Columbia University. 2019, which right. feels like it was last year, but I am told oh, okay. it's not. I have to keep reminding myself of this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, but she's also a, a sparklingly witty presence on Twitter, where you can follow her at Mervatim, M-E-R-V-A-T-I-M. And um, she tells a, really, a lot of really funny stories about her kids that I find incredibly relatable. We mentioned in the interview that we both have small kids who are kind of around the same ages. And I really enjoy her, like wry perspective on motherhood <laughs> on the internet but uh but we talked about vampire sex with Merve, and i learned a ton and had a blast i did too as i always do when i when i get to talk to to Merve. uh so Merve has written for you know everything from the new yorker to the atlantic new york review of books uh new york times you know really an, a presence across the cultural landscape i'm sure there are dozens of, of other publications that I'm forgetting now that she's written for. Um, on top of her academic work, her editing work, uh, she edited uh, Mrs. Dalloway recently. I'm so uh, stoked about her new Mrs. Dalloway. I think that's coming yeah. out, yeah. Nerd alert. People who say, I'm so stoked for the new Mrs. Dalloway <laughs> in 2021, but I am, you know? Um, cool. Well, should we take it to the bridge? Let's do it. Let's, what's a bridge in Transylvania? Oh, unprepared. Let's take it. Let's take it it to the Borgo Pass. (laughs) Let's go. Readers and viewers of Bram Stoker's Dracula will uh, will know what that's a reference to. And maybe someday I will, too. Um, But for now, it's it's the pass where, you know, you'll go to this pass and then a ghostly carriage will arrive. Oh, that pass. and abduct you to our interview. Right, right. With Merve Emre. Right, exactly. And um, let's hope it ends a little better. Uh, but thank you once again for joining us in our cruise through the 90s <laughs> in this season of The Feminist Present. And um, we've got more more hit parades coming up for you very soon. Looking forward to having you join us in another week. Enjoy. <laughs> I'm like totally going to follow your two leads on this conversation, but like, let me just say that like, I went into this viewing pretty like pure and virginal, you know, like many of the people who appear in the film and, (laughs) and I left, you know, the devil's concubine, but like, what I wanted to mention is like, I didn't have a framing going into this for like, whether I was supposed to be taking this movie seriously or not. And like, all Adrian had said was like, I love this movie. It's amazing. I'm so excited to watch it, which could mean take it seriously, or could mean this is going to be ridiculous. So I spent like, 
three quarters of the movie kind of trying to take it seriously and like doing some Coppola research on the side and like, you know, taking little notes. And then as I was like 10 minutes away from the end, Adrian texted me and he was like, this convo is blowing up on Twitter. And I like saw everybody clowning on this movie on Twitter. I was like, oh, now I understand. So it was a really really exciting joyride for me <laughs> to learn how to take this movie seriously or not. Do you both take it seriously? Maybe it's a good opening question. Well, I had a similar experience to the one you're describing. And I think I actually didn't go in virginal and pure. I went in corrupted by my memories of interview with a vampire, which yes. came out in the same year or two years later, I can't remember exactly. A little bit later, yeah. A little bit later, yeah. And I remember watching that film when I was roughly the age that Kirsten Dunst is in the movie and feeling on the one hand really like titillated by it at, you know, 10 or 11. But on the other hand, feeling like it was very safe because it is so decorous and it is so marked for me by that like refined beauty of Brad Pitt and Tom Cruise in the mid 1990s. <laughs> and so I think I went in expecting something more like that and then realized that that movie must have in some way been a reaction to the like utter excess, the just crazy over the topness of of this Dracula. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. And that you have to kind of read the two together as these extremes of what we think of when we think of vampires. <laughs> I mean, I think that would be, would have been my pitch to both of you. I mean, I've seen this movie. So cards on the table, like maybe a hundred times. <laughs> my husband has gone as Lucy from that movie to like three Halloweens easy, you know, and does the whole Arthur come with me bit. And We're going to need an image of that for the episode notes, please. I'm sure we've documented this. Do your best to obtain permissions. Yeah, I honestly don't know if I could have answered that question for you. Like, how seriously are we supposed to take this? Part of what I love about it is it's about, it's a kind of a theory of the spectacle. And the mm -hmm. spectacle is... Of such a way that like it feels very Victorian to me in that like it's neither totally just Grand Guignol nonsense nor is it at all smart. It's daffy and then brilliant <laughs> and then daffy again, right? And in some way there is no... On the one hand it mm -hmm, has the visual mm -hmm. vocabulary in some parts of like a 90s prestige picture but on the other hand what it doesn't ever have is respectability, right? Like it, it really... Mm -hmm. It kind of, right, like... It rips all the bodices, it chews all the scenery, it decapitates all the... Right? It just... it, And I guess that's where I would say Interview with a Vampire kind of went a different route, right? That's on some level trying to be a respectable movie. It's also trying to be like a period piece, right? It's a faithful period piece. And this is amazingly mm -hmm. unconcerned with when it is set. <laughs> I mean, yeah. like, yes, it feels Victorian, but it also has all of these moments of, like, historical pastiche, right? right? Mm -hmm. And these moments of historical pastiche that are played up just for, for like, pure mm -hmm. kitsch and for, for bathos, I think. Like, there are moments when it seems aware. That's a good word. Of its, yeah. own, of its own badness, like that these moments where sort of camp 
transforms into pure bathos. Yeah. And the moments, some of which were mentioned yesterday on the, the mm-hmm. Twitter thread about this, were the amazing Elizabethan ruffle. Yes. <laughs> around around Lucy's neck. Or the, I think Claire Jarvis mentioned the John Lennon glasses. Yes. That Vlad is wearing. But to me, the really the most knowing moment that shouts like we're in the 90s is the fact that the image of Winona with the blood on her face is recalling Heather's 1989. It's recalling the end of Heather's, the fire and the blood that ends that movie that, I mean, was that the movie that sort of made her into this, you know, young superstar? That and Beetlejuice. Beetlejuice preceded it, but yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, that I think the moment where she has the power at the end of the film to free him to free all of us, you know, it's star Winona and it's flashing back to the roles that let her inhabit that position, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I was also really interested to learn two things. Well, first of all, to what you were just saying, Merve, I would never have followed the timeline or like plot unfurling of this film had I not been the sort of like following along on Wikipedia. I would have been completely lost because it does play so fast and loose with the like historical conventions and locations like that. But I was also really interested to learn that Winona Ryder was the one who brought Coppola this script. Yeah. Like she was kind of, I think the story is that she had just turned down the part in The Godfather 3 that eventually went to Sophie. Coppola and so she thought that Francis Ford Coppola was like mad at her and she was trying to get back in his good graces and she was like we'll just check out this script and she was expecting him to completely ignore it but apparently Dracula had been like one of his story loves as a child so I was really interested to, to find that the origin point of the film came with her and one of the the other things that I did not struggle to take seriously in the movie and that I thought was genuinely really brilliant was that they didn't use any kind of computer-generated VFX. Right. It's all practical and camera-based tricks, which is really hard to do. You have to have a lot of skill and like knowledge base as a filmmaker to pull off like a green light trickling in through a window and traveling through the room. You know, like that's right. not easy to pull off without CGI. So I did have to kind of tip my hat to FFC on that one. Merve was saying that, you know, in, in some way it's playing it's playing a little bit with the history, right? Like, especially the design is definitely, I mean, mm-hmm. Castle Dracula doesn't look medieval. His John Lennon glasses don't look like they come from the 1890s. But the one way in which it's trying to be this historicist picture is by, like, using some of the oldest cinematic tricks in the book, right? Yes. And some of yes. them are borrowed from other vampire films, like the, the when the carriage first arrives at the Borgo Pass, that's taken from Nosferatu pretty clearly. Hmm. But then there's other stuff in there, like in that amazing Come to Me Arthur scene, right? Like it's very clear that Sadie Frost is being recorded backwards, right? When she goes back into her coffin, that's a really old trick to get someone to move in this kind of uncanny manner um, mm-hmm. by just having them simulate the action you know, going forward and then re- re- and reversing then the, tape. the tape. Yeah. yeah. And then and all this other stuff. I mean, like, there, there's so many irises in this. There's so many superimpositions in this. There is so much reprojection in this film, right? Which, like, in you didn't have to do anymore in the 1990s. But, like, it's almost like they're like, hey, what if Bram Stoker had, like, made a movie instead of writing a book? So it's actually about the undead techniques of cinema. Exactly, yeah. Right? I mean, that's the real undead. That's right. Here is is cinematic technique, not 
Dracula, who's so obviously alive, (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. not, you know, Gary Oldman with all of his prosthetics. And a friend of mine was joking. My friend, Sarah was joking that she said she felt like this is the period in Gary Oldman's career where he just was like, put as many wigs on me as you possibly can. (laughs) But there's a kind of, there's a vitality to him, even at his most decrepit. But what seems undead are actually the ways of making the film that we see being kind of gathered, gathered together. And I think it's really interesting to think of it as a vampiric film first and a film about a vampire second. Yeah. Well, and it's a film about how um, desire and film and undeadness kind of interact, right? There's that amazing scene, the scene where it's at the cinematograph where Dracula is about to basically eat or, or whatever, or like feed on Amina Harker, uh, but then thinks better of it, can't go through with it. And if you remember, uh, in the background, they're showing the movie about the train pulling into the station. I believe it may be called train pulling into the station, uh, right? Very fa- famous early <laughs> film reel. And as he as he's about to basically, you know, feed on her, it switches to ba- basically what appears to be early like filmic pornography, hmm. right? The movie's horniness and the movie's being a movie and the vampirism like are all kind of like totally. the longer it goes on, the harder it has time distinguishing between these three things, like feeding on people like medially feeding on them sexually, feeding on them for their blood. Really hard to tell where one ends and where the other begins. Yeah, what that makes me think of in in terms of the way the, the film is gesturing towards like cinematic history is I feel like the message that emerges from that is like, hey, audience, don't forget that as long as video recording has been around, porn has been around, you know, like, and that felt very in line with the erotics of the film, we really need to talk about vampire sex. Will you both educate me as if I am like an undergrad reading this novel and viewing this movie for the first time on like, what the fuck is going on with vampire erotics (laughs) in this film? Please teach me. Well, Can I just say one thing? Yeah. Your earlier point before we talk about vampire sex, which I'm eager to talk about. That idea that you just articulated that the film is reminding us that as long as recording devices have been around, porn has been around, actually makes me think that we as the audience are coming to it in the same sort of naive and almost obtuse position as Keanu and Winona. (laughs) And that there's something like wonderful to me about the moment when Sadie Frost's character is flirting with all of those men. Do you remember when she's wearing that green dress with a really low cut back? Oh, I do. And she has her three, yeah, and she has her three suitors and she's, you know, takes the dagger out of one of their trousers and it's so big, let me feel it. And like Winona's voiceover there is like, I knew she was a good and pure girl. <laughs> And that amazing, like, unwillingness to see what is right in front. What is happening. What is happening. You know, whether it's her, like, obvious flirtations and her, you know, her checkered past and the checkered past of film. That Mm -hmm. makes me feel like we are actually asked to inhabit that same position of incredible naivete. And yes. now I feel like making fun of Keanu for his accent is <laughs> like making fun of yourself for how you're <laughs> for for that naivete. Keanu's listen, you know, Dr. Emery, Keanu's performance was perfect and he is perfect, and I will not hear a word <laughs> of slander against 
that particular genius. He was so beautiful in this film. Like he has, I don't know. He was so sexy to me in this film. I definitely had vampire feelings towards. Young They're both so beautiful. He and Winona are both like their skin. It's it's just alabaster. It's, it's totally. I think to get back to the earlier question about vampire sex, the other position you're made to inhabit as the viewer is as like somebody who you know, like I don't know how many years away are we from 1994. Oh, 1992? Seven, 19, 19? I'm in the humanities. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, okay, whatever. Someone, so, you know, three decades later. Guys, 29. Jesus, it's 29. Yeah, I, know. <laughs> I couldn't see the math. I <laughs> three decades later, you know, you want to, like, eat their flesh. You're like, oh, my God, they look delicious and, yeah. like, yeah. pure and untouched by time. And we have been ravaged since. And how do I just get that? Like, how yeah. do I inhabit that youth that has been preserved? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, people say that, like, you know, Kiana was miscast or something like that. I really don't, I really don't think so. I think one of the questions clearly is what, what was Coppola going for with that? Mm. I mean, one thing that I think has been pointed out is that it's not a very good part. Right? Jonathan Harker is kind of not a good... It's a really flat part. Yeah, totally. I mean, like, he's, he's literally the least interesting person in that. Entire... He's the straight man to everybody else's, like, blood-spurting orgy. Yeah. And it spends about half the movie getting off-screen vampiric blowjobs, right? So, like, he's just, like... They, they give him a little bit of a redemption arc at the end there, but like, I mean, come on, like, like, so he rode a horse once, but like, you know, I think that he has a kind of like almost silent film quality to him, right? That like the telegraphed stuff, the like incredibly wooden emoting, it feels like he might be someone from, I mean, I guess not the 1890s, but the 1920s or something like that, right? Like some beautiful creature who like, you know, who was in the in the in the pictures and and has long since died, you know. He works for me for that, yeah. I feel like people often criticize Keanu for being kind of under emotive. And to this I have two things to say. Number one, have you ever seen him do comedy? Because he is so good as a comic actor. Number two, what people often call woodenness in him. And like, I'm not going to defend every aspect of this performance. His his accent is not convincing, obviously. But I have some like racial thoughts on that too. But like what people often call woodenness in him, I sometimes find to be subtlety. You know, he doesn't mm. overact, you know, and there's a lot of overacting in this movie <laughs> in oh. particular. And Jonathan Harker is kind of, if you telegraph a, a fierce kind of intelligence, like that character's unplayable right like yeah how the fuck do you not notice he has to be duped yeah the country-sized red flags all around you is like right. you know this dude doesn't have a reflection he keeps shattering mirrors around you he holds a sword to you during the, your first dinner like run dude run he has to play the innocent he yeah, has to play yeah. the innocent to make that convincing don't you feel like it's not just keanu so like to me there's something almost brechtian about this ah. movie in that it actually seems like all of the actors were told to play parts as if they were all in different films yeah i think that's right yeah very different draculas right like i I mean anthony hopkins for instance is a key example of this to me where he is like playing this part for comic relief Mm -hmm. which is so different from how keanu is playing which is so different from how winona is playing Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And which is totally different from how Gary Oldman is playing his part, right? And so to me, it almost seems like they were each told to imagine themselves in like separate, related versions of the same film and right. then kind of like brought together. So there is something profoundly estranging for me about 
the way that they interact with one another that I think maybe just goes back to the point we were making earlier about the way the film is historicizing. Also goes back to like acting techniques, right? Yeah. They do seem to belong to different schools of acting. Yeah. I mean, just to throw one more in there, Tom Waits, right? Who's basically is in in his own separate movie. Like, I mean, it interacts with like, made two figures like it's clearly sort of still high on his own Jim Jarmusch supply like it's it's just completely you're like okay now we're back with Tom Waits doing a Tom Waits thing you know why not also Richard E. Grant is like perennially one of my favorite actors (gasps) in anything he is so good but the thing I wanted to say about Keanu's accent that feels important in 2021 in a way that it might have been less urgent to the discourse in 1992 is that like Keanu is a half Asian person, which a lot of people didn't realize until like very recently. So to me, there's something kind of insidious about Hollywood trying to shove him in this box of like, play a British doctor, you know, play the fall guy to everybody Mm. else's vampire blood soaked orgy. But like when you can't master a British accent, we are going to savage you forever. And so it kind Mm. of feels like trying to stuff him into a box that that wasn't necessarily who he was to begin with and then kind of making fun of him when he fails and there's there mm-hmm. is kind of like a racialized element to that to me of like well you're not british enough keanu you know but maybe that's out on a limb i actually thought winona's accent was as bad as his was and to me i mean this is a real reach but i kept thinking about like these Americans in Europe trying to like be Europeans. Mm-hmm. Like they almost seem like these strange, like Jamesian actor characters to me, the people who are asked to kind of play European, play English, but can't figure out quite how to do it. And that to me only kind of adds to their innocence and their charm and their naivete. But and I mean I think I think the the naivete and innocence are so important here. I mean I I, I don't know the scholarly literature on on the novel nearly well enough but there's a reason why jonathan harker in the book and in the movie is just preternaturally daft when it comes to understanding right he's just like oh that this, I, that must be how they do things over here right which is to me that feels like a colonizer trope right mm. the ability to keep yourself pure of another country in some way make it so that you're the one being corrupted by it which then license all kinds of violence right in the end we have these Englishmen kind of riding through Transylvania, shooting at Sidi and Roba, right? Like, basically, to me, that's always felt like, yeah, that's a colonial fantasy. And I think that that's, um, and I think it's it's really good of Coppola to keep that keep that in there and sort of mark it. I feel like the, the movie sort of does a good job underlining things that were clearly there, right? Like, the fear of venereal disease is like, you know, like, that's like, that's like, hovers over the book and Coppola is like, I will have a shot of red blood cells <laughs> just in case, uh, you know, someone didn't read the Cliff's notes, you know? <laughs> well, the Christian, the Christian imperialism feels super colonialist too. I was actually hoping you guys could explain a little bit more to me about what's going on there because I don't know very much about like this period or like what the fuck Transylvania is, but like a lot of what the movie seemed to be suggesting was the sort of rise of the crucifix beating back this like influx of like Islamic forces. But I don't know if that's a misinterpretation. I don't know if that's Coppola's interpretation. Like, what did you guys make of the sort of colonial Mm. geopolitics of the religion specifically? Yeah, I mean, to me, it was fascinating that it starts with that obviously fake shot of Istanbul or Constantinople. Sure. And that Dracula is charged with sort of 
beating back the invading Muslim hordes, right? Exactly, exactly. But then turns against the turns against the crucifix yeah. itself, right. and so I think that makes him an interesting figure, kind of in that geopolitical struggle, right? Given that uh, you know, Coppola is famous for another take on British literature, I was wondering: is he a Kurtz figure? Is he giving is he giving Dracula the Kurtz treatment here? I wanted to get back to your comments on vampire sex, because I wanted to say that Please. the other thing, in addition to venereal disease, that I think the other fear that's being kind of exorcised here very explicitly is the fear of female sexual pleasure. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> sure, and I want sure. to talk about that because there is just so much writhing. <laughs> so much writhing and also so much homo... What's um what's Winona Ryder's friend's name? The blonde, the other girl, Lucy. Lucy. There seemed to be so much like homoerotic charge between Lucy and. I mean, they make they make out. It's not a homoerotic charge. Where? When do they make out? Oh yeah, they kiss. How did I miss that? <laughs> with, with, because this movie is subtle as hell. Okay. With with Dracula's boat making progress towards Southampton, or where does where does it end up? I don't know. Up the canal. Yeah. Exactly. Going up the canal. Exactly. <laughs> I just I wanted to watch I wanted to watch a spinoff that was just like these two women, you know, out in their own lives, living a happier life than like being destroyed by vampires. That's another kind of wonderful moment where the imperial geopolitical reading comes in, right? When they're being educated about sex, what are they reading? They're reading the Arabian Night. Nice. Oh, is yeah. that what they were reading? I couldn't tell if it was that or the Kama yeah. Sutra. Yeah. Okay. And they start kind of looking at the illustrations in the book. And they're like tittering and scandalized. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're obviously so turned on. And, right. you know, like that um, that scene of, of triangulation, the two women and the foreign book, right? That That is a kind of classically homoerotic trope yeah. of how totally. women come to learn about sex through each other, but also through through reading. It's also a pretty classic configuration, right? That their prurience, their, I guess, looseness on some level, right? I mean, they, they're coded as being too interested in it, right? They're, they're ultimately- Her chased. name is Lucy. Yeah. Her name is Lucy, <laughs> you know? Like. Um, but that's what lets him in, right? Like it's, it's a fantasy of reverse colonization through this like hyper masculine figure from mm -hmm. the east right like it's it's, exactly. it's not subtle about like if you had the choice between jonathan harker and you know i, I, I there is no choice there's yeah, no yeah. there is no choice yeah, yeah yeah well he doesn't have john lennon glasses yeah what Mervey was just saying was also making me think of like just like what we were saying about how the inclusion of like vintage porn reminds us that like porn has been around as long as a video camera has been around. So too does Arabian Nights make the same point about literature, that as long as people mm -hmm. have been recording things about literature, people have been like drawing sexy pictures and writing sexy stories for people to like titter over with their suggestively titled girlfriends. And that seems to be that seems to be like Coppola making that point in several different ways to me. Well, but also that so much of the female pleasure in this movie is non-penetrative, right? Mm -hmm. Yes, except for the fangs. <laughs> except for the fang, yeah, right, yeah. right, right, right. But it's where penetration is is corrupting. corrupting. No, it, but it's not corrupting. But it's 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 happening in lockstep with the oral, right? I mean, mm -hmm. there's something there's something interesting to me about that, right? Mm -hmm. that I mean, there are all of these yeah. kinds of licking going down on each 
each other, yeah, right? Yeah. And, that, and that it's the mouth that is the vehicle of penetration. Yeah, yeah. that scene where Winona is like breastfeeding the cut in Gary Oldman's, like, I, I don't know. It was so strange. And or the scene with three brides, including a very young Monica Bellucci, by the way, who, um, when they suck blood out of Keanu's nipple, it's like... It's nipple, yeah. I love, I love that he can't quite figure out what to do with their boobs, though. Yeah. <laughs> what? what are these? And in fact, like the amazing moment in that scene to me is when Dracula arrives and like banishes them from Keanu and he says, he is mine, right? Which is pretty amazing in and of yep. itself. But then when you see the women walk away with one of them like still stuck in between the other one's legs, right? Yeah. She's like upside down yeah. on the other one's legs. I mean, it's just amazing to me how many different ways there are of having sex in this right. movie that are way more interesting than what's being shown in that version of Arabian Nights. That's true. My research surfaced that Coppola apparently felt a little wary of like giving a lot of sexual coaching as a director to these young female actresses which I'm like okay well there's one guy in Hollywood who like thought twice <laughs> about that cool and there was a little bit that I read that he actually had Gary Oldman the scene where Lucy is like writhing in ecstasy on the bed he had Gary Oldman sitting talking to her and like the actress who played Lucy said that like the things that Gary Oldman were saying to her were like absolutely unprintable <laughs> and I was like that's such an interesting um like re-channeling of directorial responsibility to be like, well, I don't feel comfortable saying these things to you, but I think it's okay if Gary Oldman doesn't. <laughs> I was like, yeah. okay, I don't know how to feel about that. Well, one of the amazing things to me about Gary Oldman, maybe the most striking costume of all is in that initial scene when he seems to be wearing his flesh inside out, you know, his battle yeah. uniform in the first yes. scene almost appears to be the body sort of turned inside yeah. out, like all of the musculature, the striations, you see, you see all Good of point. that. And there's something about this movie starting with insides exposed. That's right. Bingo. Walking it back and getting you back to that state of exposure. Yeah. Or mm -hmm. immersion in the physical. On a much more pedestrian note, if people want to see this amazing suit of armor as it were in the flesh, it's on display at the Coppola Winery uh, in I forget somewhere somewhere mm -hmm. in uh, in Sonoma County. If you if you want to drink some wine and look at look at that uh, at that amazing armor, they still have it. You guys should really invite me out there to. We'll, we'll do it. We should take a selfie with it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, my oh my god! Let's go! Let's go and like bring our children, Adrian, yeah. and be like, "Welcome! You've seen it." Yeah. My kids did come into the room. While I was watching this, I was watching on my laptop and my kids had been playing outside and then they came in and I immediately closed it. And my son, my older son was like, well, what are you watching? And I said, you know, it's not appropriate. And he immediately grabbed the laptop and was like, I want to see it. I want to see it. I want to see it. <clears throat> How old are your kids, Merve? I think we have kids around the same age. How old are yours? Mine are three and five. Okay, yeah. Three and five, yeah. And it was it was just very funny how eager, the second I said, you know, it's kind of like that Arabian Nights scene, right? The second I'm like, yeah. this is not appropriate to look at. He was like, I must know, I must know what know. mommy yeah. is watching. <laughs> I mean, fair enough, yeah.
One thing we haven't talked so much about is the way this movie kind of also plays with conventions around hysteria, which I always find it's kind of most risky gambit. The Riding Lucy is such a kind of such a classic hysteric. Even the sort of anatomical theater in which we first meet Van Helsing, I mean, it's it's riffing on a Thomas Eakins painting, I think, but it's also clearly playing with like, you know, Charcot at the Salpêtrière and stuff like that. Like, I wonder if like, were people just more Freudian in 1992 and like could sort of spot this stuff? Or like, is the movie kind of miscalculating there thinking that like, oh, people will get that this is psychoanalysis, right? I mean, given that you, that you write about the way kind of human personality is kind of discursivized right um like yeah. like there the movie seems also quite literate uh, in its way of conceptualizing that in a way that i fr frankly feel like i don't fully have a handle on i mean do you feel like it's done in earnest i mean i guess that's my question for for everything right like it's hard to believe it's on the one hand very easy to see the literalization of certain psychoanalytic concepts or terms in this film on the other hand, it's just hard to believe that this film is doing anything in earnest. And you think it must be sort of playing with the desire. This was the tension I felt the entire time watching it. Yeah. This is what I felt the whole time. I could not tell what was earnest, you know, like I could not locate the sort of earnestness register in this movie in coincidence with myself. Part of me, Merve, and this would be mean and I'm not going to do it, but part of me wants to ask you to like Myers-Briggs type every character <laughs> in this movie, like off the top of your head. I won't actually, but you, if you do have any thoughts, I would be thrilled to hear them. <laughs> well, anyone with bangs is extroverted. So. I think so. I think you're right. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's that's super that's super interesting because there is one of the things that I was thinking as I was watching this is like when filmmakers make films, they must think about how they will age. Mm -hmm. Right. Coppola, especially. Yeah, especially. Right. Yeah. So you like wonder if you're making a film that will be one generation's sort of art house gore and will mm -hmm. be the next generation's camp. Mm -hmm. And yeah. and I just you almost you almost get the sense watching this that that this was a film being made for posterity. Yeah. And thinking about the contemporary audience and the audience of the future interacting with it at two completely different levels with two different languages mm. of aesthetic appreciation. And I guess that's, that's you know, insofar that's as we're well thinking said. about the undead, there are two different ways of being undead, right? You think about the undead of the past, but then you think about creating undead people for the future. Right? Yeah, yeah. So I thought a lot about how the vampiric tropes in this movie projected into the future. And I think I think what I'm about to say is attributable to both the impact of the book and the impact of the film. But I could not stop thinking about Twilight, my dudes. Like, the entire conceit of Twilight is exactly the same in which you have this male vampire lover who has this female love object who he, like, loves and is obsessed with and wants to have sex with, but he resists and resists and resists and won't have sex with her because he doesn't want to corrupt her by bringing him into his undead world. Like, the construction is straight out of Dracula. And it was just one of these moments where I was like, oh, these conceits and constructions have totally like like extended far past this film like this is an archetype at this point as much as it is its own work of art yeah i think that's right at the same time i i do wonder i'm trying to remember whether whether the love fool aspect of the story is as present in the stoker book it's been a little while for me but i kind of think given that it's all sort of 
told through diaries and, and letters. And I think we don't find out one way or the other um, what this creature mm-hmm. sees in Nina Harker. But I, I think you're absolutely right for this movie. And of course, it's all over Interview with a Vampire. True Blood, totally. Yeah. yeah, you guys were talking about Interview with a Vampire at the beginning. And I, in my ignorance, I like had completely confused Interview with a Vampire and Dracula. And I was watching this movie like, and I kept waiting for Kirsten Dunst to show up. And I was ah. like, where's Kiki? Kiki's not coming. Not coming yeah, to Dracula. Yeah. yeah, no. Which is, I mean, I don't want to say anything bad about Interview with a Vampire, but that's a movie I think that rewatches differently from this one. And and I think it's exactly what Mary mm. was talking about. The fact that like that was a movie made for its time and like and and it kind of shows. Yeah. And this one I mean it's weird. The nineties, right, were kind of a good time for this. Like Starship Troopers is the other one I can think of. The movie that like Everyone at the time was like, this is so dumb. And now everyone's like, this is so smart. I kept thinking about like the sort of other movies in the canon of the early 90s, especially through the lens of Ryder and Oldman. And like both of them were doing like period piece after period piece at this point. Like Oldman had just done Immortal Beloved when he played Beethoven. And Ryder, I think, was about to do The Age of Innocence. So I think they were kind of coded as these like you know, British-ish, like, period piece actors. But the other hallmark of early 90s cinema to me is, like, heroin chic, right? And this is definitely influenced by having just watched The Basketball Diaries recently, but, like, the paleness, the injections, you know, the blood orgy, the sensuality, like, I, I can't say if that was in Coppola's mind, but, like, it certainly seemed to resonate with some of the other kind of heroin-laced films of the era, you know? When was David Bowie's Labyrinth made? That was the 80s. That was the 80s. Yeah, I'll look it up. Yeah. 1985. Okay, like... that's weirdly one of my favorite movies. <laughs> it's a great movie. Me too. It's a great, yeah, great movie. Great movie with a great soundtrack, too. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yes. And that was the film that kept coming to mind for me as mm. I was watching this movie mm. you similarly have the kind of alabaster skin pure dark haired young heroine who is sort of lured into this corrupting world by the you know androgynous and beautiful mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Both, right and will later play a catastrophic heroin addict in Requiem for a Dream you know like I think that young Jennifer Connelly has that same alabaster you know biteable quality that that Wynonna Ryder has and directors use that quality in the same way well I think that's frankly where the John Lennon glasses come in right like the idea that of the vampire as pop star oh yes right the vampire as great point yeah as as, you know as as satanic seducer I think that's extremely present here and of course Anne Rice I think literalized it in one of the I think in the vampire listat I forget which one turns out it's not so convincing if you like have Lestat join like a grunge band or whatever, but like as a as a concept, it gets you pretty what far as long fuck? as you don't make it too little. Vampire, the vampire is a dandy, yes, yeah, too, right. right? Yes, what's so yes. striking about that the fit of the suit, mm-hmm. the hat, the mm-hmm. hair. I mean, it is kind of classic Victorian dandy, yeah, that is being wedded to that image of the of the pop star. I'm so glad we're talking about like styling in this film because the wardrobe and even more than the wardrobe, the hairstyling was incomprehensible to me. Like I actually I loved most of the wardrobing. Like I thought the dresses were really like sumptuous and like fun to watch and that like a lot of it was very inventive and just like interesting to watch on screen. The hairstyles, like I cannot get over the sort of like sheep butt 
shape of like Gary Holdman's two like humps on his head. I texted Adrian that I think like most of the hairstylists fell into like one of three categories. It was like snakes, butt, or or what was the other one? I was thinking of the Keanu, the like gray Keanu. It'll come to me. Helmet, basically. Helm something. It was just they were so strange and unnatural to me. And like obviously this is a movie about many unnatural things, but like what did you both make of the sort of hair and wardrobe and like styling mm. of the actors' appearances? You didn't think of Princess Leia with the hair? <laughs> because that was my I first did. thought. That was my first thought. I was like, oh. They've made him, they've tried to adapt Princess Leia's. I just, I couldn't stop seeing like a fucking sheep twerking on his head. Like I didn't see Princess Leia at all. I just saw ass. <laughs> I mean, what's amazing is that head of hair on that sort of red, that scarlet dressing gown with, I mean, doesn't have dragons embroidered on it? Oh, that like, was an there's, amazing there's dressing gown. Very, very, there's something extraordinarily strange going on there, especially when he holds up the lantern. I mean, all of these aspects seem to come from different films. Like it mm -hmm. seems like someone <laughs> ran through a wardrobe department and like accidentally got tangled in the mm -hmm. like wigs and clothing of a couple of different, of a, and the accessories of a couple of different movies. It's, it's all over the place, yeah. You described the dresses as sumptuous. I actually couldn't figure out whether they were really like rich and beautiful or whether they hmm. were very cheap, which is sort of a problem I had with a lot of the styling. Like some of the, some of like the, the nightgowns, those like really the flimsy sort of mm -hmm. hot pink nightgowns looked like they could have been grabbed off the rack at Victoria's Secret circa 1994. Fredericks of Hollywood, honey. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and so I, you know, like with many aspects of this film that inhabit this really interesting duality, I felt the same way about the styling where I was like, you know, did this come from like the mall or, or was this, you know, really kind of carefully, carefully crafted? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, we were just talking about Winona in the age of innocence. And I think that by contrast is a movie where the costumes look very expensive at every, like that I think is much more mm -hmm. sumptuous in like a money way. It's not a costume drama in no. that way, right? It feels almost like... You know, someone ran through through the costume department is one one way of putting it. It's especially with a coat of armor and whatever a suit of armor. It's fairly it's clearly intentional, but it feels like a deliberately underinformed view of right. They're they're not going for period accuracy, and I think that that's that that must be to some extent mm. deliberate. And part of it feels like it's going to sound weird, but it sounds a little bit the way. Hollywood designers treat non-European exactly. cultures, yes. right? We're like, oh, it, it looks African yes. enough, right? Like this feels like, oh, it feels European enough, give or take a hundred years. Like, well, a hundred years matter immensely in the 19th century, but okay. You know, but, and it has that feel where it's like, eh, it's, it's old timey, you know, which is kind of also how it treats religion, mm -hmm. I think, right? Like, but that's already Stoker, right? Like Stoker is like, clearly there's a lot of Catholic shit going uh, on. Just a little, yeah. Why is everyone Catholic in this How movie? better to make an imperialist movie, Adrian? than Catholics. Yeah, but 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 that's that's a minoritarian religion in England and and it is also, by the way, in Romania. If we're just talking about fucked up sexual mores, you know, imperialism, really confused like messaging about gender and sexuality, like that screams Catholicism to me. But maybe it would have been I mean, different I, in the hands of a less Catholic director, too. No, but this is this is true in the book too, I believe. That it's never made explicit that the nuns that, for instance, like that Sister Agatha, who writes from, I guess it's supposed to be somewhere in Transylvania, like they appear to be a Catholic convent mm -hmm. in, a, in an area that, as far as I know, 
has probably way more Protestants and, and Orthodox than it, it has Catholics. Yeah. Are they actually interested in Catholicism or are they just interested in the kind of practices and icons associated with it? Because clearly there's, they're very invested in the cross. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm, I mean, mm-hmm. showing the cross bleeding, showing the cross melting into Keanu's chest. I mean, there's, and, and obviously they're also really invested in exorcism mm-hmm. yeah. as, a, as a practice. So are these just kind of, you know, popularized notions of yeah. Catholicism or is there actually about an, it. an investment beyond that? It's definitely mostly iconographic. Yeah. There's certainly the, the iconography is the most important, right? Like the moment where Keanu's nipples squirts blood, I think is a reference to these famous medieval, uh, mostly altarpieces, I believe, right? Where you get sort of spritzes of mother's milk from Mary's breast, right? And they literally, like, they draw that in. You can see the see it sort of squirting across the canvas. <laughs> you know, I mean, the Middle Ages knew where their priorities were. It's so, it's so embarrassing when you just leak like that, you know? It's so embarrassing. Um, you, don't so much pads, you don't have your pads in. Um... <laughs> I agree with you guys that, it's, that the Catholicism is mostly iconographic, and I'm thinking of how many cuts there were from, like, blood to wine, or blood to someone carving, like, a giant hunk of meat. So like definitely the imagery is is the lodestone of how Catholicism functions here. But I also think that there's like an emphasis on sort of like spiritual retribution that like feels very Catholicized to me. Like everybody is constantly sort of like trying to outrun their own fate and their own punishment. And that sort of like predeterminism feels very Catholic mm-hmm. to me. But I, I will say that my view is that is totally corrupted by the fact that like I'm a huge Coppola fan. I'm a huge Godfather fan. And like obviously the way Catholicism figures in the Godfather trilogy is mostly iconographic too, but there's just a little more emphasis on sort of like the family values side of things, um, if you could call it that in the Godfather. <laughs> what do you guys make of the way that writing is incorporated into the film? Because this is something that I keep thinking about watching watching it, the kind of overlay of maps, of letters, mm-hmm. the attempt to yeah. some of the like epistolary texture that the novel has to the to the film. Yeah, and I, I wanted to kind of connect that to Keanu's acting in some way, but I couldn't quite Ooh. how to make that connection. I took the function of the maps and the letters as serving basically two purposes. One, to, like you said, call back to the epistolary nature of the novel, and two, kind of, in my mind, unsuccessfully, like, orient the viewer in space and time as both are constantly changing throughout the film. I thought it was kind of an effort to plant a few signposts, but if that was the effort, I don't think it was successful because I was so fucking lost the whole time in this blood orgy. (laughs) For me also, it was about creating a kind of create an impression of the texture of the actual novel. And I do think I do think it kind of locks these characters in their own perspective very effectively, right? The fact that they can't know what each other are no, what yes. each other should know, right? So I, I kind of connected it with that. It also it's it's also of course a technique that really lends itself to old timey, right? Like using these kinds of split screens that where you just kind of overlay uh, materials, right? I mean there's that amazing scene where he's on the train He's reading Dracula's letter and then Dracula's yes, eyes sort of pop I out of your projection. And it's like, you're like, thank you. More, more of this, please. You know, so, so I think I think the written word is just easy to sort of superimpose in this way. And, 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 and I think that there's also kind of a collage aspect. Yes, especially if you're making a movie without CGI, you know, right. like I think that adds a little bit more visual texture if you're not going to be doing the bells and whistles of like, right. you know, computer generating vampires. One of the things I love about that scene that you're describing is the incredible 
horror and emphasis placed on his initial. Yeah. Oh yeah. Your fr- your friend. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's. I mean, it's it's. It's interesting because I was trying to think how often in this film you you have letters presented in script that looks mm-hmm. very old, but how yeah. often you actually get something yeah. legible. That's true too, yeah. And the fact that that single letter, the D, is so legible and mm-hmm. that it's, it's intoned in that moment with this incredible awe and terror <laughs> um, is, yeah, is, is incredibly, <laughs> incredibly effective. I think it cre- using the letter to create a kind of atmosphere. Yeah. Can I ask a really dumb question? Does, what is Transylvania? Like, does it exist in real life? Where is yes. it? Perfectly real place. Okay. It's a real place. Where is it in like modern geography? I would say it's in North Western Romania, basically, right? So Western Romania. Um, okay, so very much in this sort of like border of the East and the West kind of place. I mean, the places that they've sailed to, for instance, all really exist, and and mm-hmm. we can talk about that a little bit too. That it's it's all set at the fringes of a collapsing empire, where right, like this is within reach of where the C- Crimean War was yes. fought, etc. Right, like so, this is you know there there is a kind of geopolitical uh, story going on here as as well. And that Englishmen kind of venturing into areas between collapsing empires, like find themselves on the civilizing mission, right? They have to vanquish these old horrors that sort of come up and that call forth their ingenuity and their their capitalistic impulses. And to also do it in this highly medicalized way. So just going back to the point we were making earlier about the presence of doctors yeah. in this film, but they have to do it in this incredibly, in this incredibly medicalized way. And one of the things I actually really like is the way that the the supposed patient or the person being interrogated actually turns the doctor into someone who's completely dependent on them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and to me, that's a kind of wonderful form of resistance that you see in the film. Yeah. No, that's that's brilliant. Yeah, the way the way that being therapized almost gives you, yeah, it's almost an empowering thing. Which is which is also interesting because of course a lot of the men project their power. I mean not so much Van Helsing, but like through capital and it, that never works out, right? Like capital like like Renfield goes completely mad. The attempt to sell Dracula Carfax Abbey turns out to be a massive boomerang just for everyone involved, right? Like it's very much, I would think, like sort of in the spirit of Victorian liberalism, right? Like the idea that there's a little bit of a attempt to moralize the free market, right? Like that like, oh, on the one hand, yes, markets should be open, free and open to everyone, including creepy counts from from the east but then turns out that that corrodes our morals and they'll they'll just buy out our abbeys and then come after our women next yeah that's why it's so funny when keanu asks in tones of just utter horror are you trying to drive up property values? Yeah. <laughs> this is the like Western imperialist logic. Yeah. Logic of buying these properties in London where you bought them. Are you trying to drive up property values artificially? And it's, it's, it's like totally the deep horror in his voice at that yeah. moment. He couldn't be more horrified if he were like, are you using them as home bases to try to suck people's blood? It's yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> but I think thinking about those two things together, right. right? Thinking about how owning property and collecting rent on that property is actually a form of vampiricism yeah. Is, yeah. Is, is, pretty, is pretty interesting for this film. Yeah, right. I mean, there's, there's also, right, the, the question of aristocracy, right? Like he's a count, 
Mina Harker is clearly supposed to be bourgeois in some way, right? There is an old sort of fairy tale logic here of like, these are bourgeois fables about the dangers of seductive people with place names in their names, right? Like it's, you know, like don't trust anyone with a Vaughn or an Of or Count so-and-so. Like this is, it's just gonna, you're gonna get your blood sucked. It's like they're driving up property values. I know. <laughs> was, no, Mirabe, I thought that was so funny too. I was like, is this set in the Bay Area in the 2020s? Like <laughs> what is going on here? Or London. <laughs> yeah, totally. That would be an amazing remake though. Dracula <gasps> as a, um, Dracula as a startup founder who- Airbnb. Airbnb Dracula? <laughs> While busing people to his campus <laughs> outside of San Francisco. That would be a truly Brechtian one where it's like, you know, what's the what's the sucking the literal sucking of blood to the uh, you know. <laughs> This was mostly a question for you, Adrian, because I know you've seen this so many times, but maybe I am also totally curious in what you would say. Like, are there lines from this movie that live in your head rent-free or that you quote to your husband or like anything like that? It seemed like there were some real kickers in there. I mean, it's so many Van Helsing lines that are great. I mean, it has this kind of the kind of my intended at the end of Heart of Darkness vibe, right? Where when he's like digging into his steak right after chopping Lucy's head off and he's like, did she suffer much? Like, yes, she suffered. Then we drove a steak through her heart and we cut off her head. I was like, that's a pretty good line. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that just reminds me of Carrie Elways in that scene. I love Carrie Elways so much. And he seems so confused in this movie. Like, that's another part that doesn't have much to do other than stand there and look beautiful. Like, and he doesn't even get the, like, Texas accent that the other guy gets. He's just, like, he felt mm-hmm. completely superfluous to me. It's just, it's just, it's, it's the sheer number of suitors, right? There have to be three of them to show that she's a, a strumpet. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, she's a slutty slut, 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 slut. Yeah, that's why her name is Lucy. Yeah, two could be chased. Yeah, two yeah. would not be enough. Two might imply respectability lurking somewhere. <laughs> um, well, Mervé, do you have anything like non-vampiric that you want to talk about that's going on in your own work life? Anything you want to shout out or promote or make known to our, our viewer, viewer, reader? We don't have viewers or readers. We have listeners. Sorry. <laughs> Who the fuck are we talking to? <laughs> Um, do I have anything? I, not of my own, but I would say that the graduate students at NYU have recently gone on strike and I would encourage everybody to donate to their strike fund, whatever you can. Um, I don't know if there's a way to link to that on the Absolutely. website when you guys mm-hmm. put up the podcast, but, um, totally. yeah, I'll just, I'll just, uh, give a, give Thank a quick you. shout out. To awesome. That. Love it. Well, thank you so much for for joining us for this. Thank you so much. This was so much fun. This was really, really, really fun. The Feminist Present is co-hosted by Adrian Dobb and Laura Good. It's produced by Laura Good and edited by Megan Kalfas. All of our original music is by Julie Herndon. We are eternally grateful for funding support from the Institute Named for a Woman in a building named for a woman, the Michelle R. Clayman Institute for Gender Research at Stanford University, where we are especially grateful to our feminist colleagues Cynthia Newberry, Alison Dahl-Crossley, Natalie P. Mason, Jennifer Portillo, Wendy Skidmore, Shivani Mehta, Carolyn Asante Darty, and Morgan Kanan. The Feminist Present is also co-sponsored by The Changing Human Experience, producing deep ideas for a better world by supporting Stanford research in the humanities and social sciences.